So one of my favorite movies is a movie called Amadeus. It won eight Academy Awards. It was made in the 80s. And the man who played the main character, Salieri, won Best Actor. Um, it won Best Picture. If you haven't seen it, it's about the life of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And not all is accurate. They kind of fabricate a bit of the Salieri, Salieri story, I think, but take some liberties. But it's a wonderful movie, powerful. And essentially, it's about a man who's a court composer. He's Italian, and he's a court composer in the Austrian emperor's, emperor's court. Gifted. All he's one, ever wanted to do is to compose music, and he does, and he's totally content until Mozart steps on the scene. And in the movie, Mozart is just, he's sort of a cretin of a man. He's young, and he's not polished at all. He's very uncouth. He's rude, but he's incredibly gifted. And the kind of work that he writes, it almost seems to be effortless and to come straight down from heaven. And it just, it's so much better than anything Salieri produces. And he's an uncouth man, but he writes this beautiful, sophisticated music. Again, that Salieri just says, when I, there's a scene where he's describing to a priest his encountering first Amadeus as a person, and just, he's just totally unimpressed. And then his music, he comes across a score that's just sitting there at a party of one of Amadeus' pieces. And of course, as he reads it, the music starts to play in his head, and he talks about the oboes coming in, and then the flute, and then the cello, or whatever it is. And he starts to hear the music, and he, and he feels like he's being transported into the very heavenlies. And he t- is talking to the priest, and he said, I felt like I was peering, I was holding on to, imagine, to bars of a prison, peering through the bars, looking at something that I couldn't get to, that I couldn't touch. Like, I, I felt like I was completely on the outside. And I bring that up because as I think about, as I prayed about what I wanted, what, I was, what God wanted to say today to us after Jake's sermon and after being in Genesis 1 through 4 for such a long time and moving us toward Palm Sunday, I just felt like obviously the texts today were where God was taking us, but that there's this sense ever since the ruin of the world when our first parents disobeyed God and were cast east out of the garden. And Jake, Jake talked about that more last week, being cast east, exiled, expelled from the very presence of God. This sense that we're outsiders, that we're peering through prison bars, even when we feel like we've made it in some capacity and we've gotten what we've been searching for all our lives, perhaps, sometimes even then it can feel like we're on the outside the most when we've gotten what we've been running after. Um, and I, this isn't in the script, but I think about when I say that, um, uh, an anecdote that I believe Tim Keller, he's a, pre- a preacher up in New York, shared about an Olympian sharing about her uh, the day after she won the Olympic gold. She'd been training all of her life, essentially, for the gold, and she finally won it. That thing that she'd been living for, she got. All of her effort, all of her toil, all of her focus on this thing, attained it. She talks about, and I think wrote about it, maybe in the Times, how the next day was the worst day of her life. Because she got what she was running after, and she realized what there is, my life is a hole, it's hollow, there's nothing left. I've gotten what I live for, and it hasn't, I've just swallowed it whole, and there's still this hollow, 
vacuum, this voracious appetite inside my soul. I'm putting words in her mouth. She didn't say that exact thing, but essentially, that's what she was saying. Um, So even if we are insiders in the world's eyes, we still feel in a very deep way through this sense of deep longing that a lot of times we don't even want to name. Like we are standing on the outside looking in, like we're outsiders. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, a sermon that he preached in 1941, right in the middle of the Second World War. He says this, he says, the books of the music in which we thought the beauty was located, the beauty that we're seeking after, right, all of our lives, will betray us if we trust them. If we think it's the books or it's the music or it's the experience or it's the person, that's gonna, that's gonna satisfy the craving. They'll betray us if we trusted them, he says. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. That's what I'm talking about, that experience that I know you have had multiple times and I've had throughout our lives where we get whatever it is that we've been searching for and reaching after, we grasp it, and it's once we grasp it, the moment we find out that it doesn't do it for us. It doesn't satisfy that deep longing and yearning that it's the most lonely feeling. It's like a cold wind is blowing through us at that moment, breaking the hearts of of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. Listen to this. They are only the scent of a flower we've not yet found, the echo of a tune we've not yet heard, news from a country we've never visited. Almost our whole education has been directed, he says, to silencing the shy, persistent inner voice Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. That longing, that deep, profound, almost unnamed because we're afraid to name it because it's so deep and profound and what if nobody else shares it? What if it's just me? Longing, we are taught in everything that surrounds us in this world can be satisfied by things in this world. And Lewis says, it's a lie. But the longing is real and it points to something real, something that Jesus points us to this morning, and this is where I want him to take us. So the Bible begins with this story, and then it, as we, some of us know, not all of us, but we've been, since January, walking through this story that, that names, that gives solid historical reasons for why we feel cracked and broken and like outsiders peering in. So, for so much of our lives, we're born into this ennui. Um, it's because of the fall. We were made for God to know him intimately as the, make, as the lover of our souls, to be an intimate relation, to be known by him, to be known by those around us, um, and to know them. In rich relationship, in a created order that is unbroken, and yet our sin, it fractured all that. And so we feel like we're just reeling most of our lives. Um, and our, most of what we do in life is an effort to silence that voice or medicate that pain or get whatever it is we've convinced ourselves that will stop the bleeding, as it were, to stop the longing. But we, we are afraid to speak about it for various reasons, maybe out of fear that no one else will relate, maybe out of fear that the longing just can't be satisfied. That's, that's frightening, that's terrifying. What if this deep longing I have can't be satisfied? Or perhaps greatest of all, from fear of exposing so deep a yearning, to make ourselves that vulnerable, to share that with others. Because when we do that, we're exposing ourselves to being hurt. But when we do that, when we admit that there's this longing that hasn't yet been satisfied, 
we're also exposing ourselves to the possibility of being healed. A description of the pain is the path toward diagnosis and then treatment. So we've talked about Eden. We've talked about as a created people, God's treasured possession, severing relationship with him through sin, choosing to go our own way, wanting to be the kings of our own lives, and then being exiled east of Eden. And we have that sense of just being east of Eden in our lives. Um, Ecclesiastes is a book that I spent four years studying um, in Europe. I, I certainly don't know everything about it, but I know some things about it. And I think that the main payload, this is controversial, because anything you say about Ecclesiastes is controversial, because it's a really tough book. And some people, you have almost more than any other book in the Bible, widely varying opinions about what the payload is. Some people say it's about grabbing the gusto, carpe diem. Life is short, so get what you can while you can. Others say it's the exact opposite. It's about how anything you do, even if it seems to have meaning and beauty, and perhaps does in the end, because of death, it's all rendered null and void. Because he says both things in the book. But so what is he saying? And I think that the large, the large payload of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament before Jesus comes on the scene, but pointing us to Jesus like the rest of the Old Testament, is that we ourselves live in a broken order, in a broken creation. And hey, we're part of that broken order. And that brokenness is inside of us and it's what I've been trying to put my finger on and articulate. And it's what, hey, it's what you know very well. You've seen it and you've felt it and you know it, even if, even if we don't want to give a name to it, right? Um, it's a description of that created order that we ourselves are part of it. Um, my father-in-law once called a man that we, were, we both knew and I had just recently become acquainted with and he knew for a long time a broken machine. And the guy talks a lot. And so I thought he, admit, I thought he meant broken record. And so I kind of corrected him. I said, oh, you mean broken record, like he repeats himself. And he said, no, I meant what I said. He's a broken machine, um, and my, what I want to say to all of us is that we all are in our natural state. We are part of this broken creation. We are broken machines. So Lewis, again, in the same sermon, he says this, C.S. Lewis, he says, God has given us the morning star already. You can go, he's talking about the sun. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? He's given us beauty. He's given us creation. Ah, but we want so much more something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and mythologies know all about it. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be, here it is, to be united with the beauty that we see. I find that when you hear people say to little cute, beautiful chubby children. They pinch their cheeks and they kiss them in. I just want to eat you up. There's a sense of that sort of simple, cute expression in that expression of, I think, what Lewis in a sublime, almost untouchable way is talking about. We want, it's not enough to be close to beauty. We want it in us. We want to gobble it up. We are voracious in our appetite to be, hey, righted, to have the bone set. We want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, he says, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They, take, they talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. 
They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. At present, he says, we're on the outside of the world, on the outside looking in through those prison bars, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the assessment of those, how should we then live, the letters that follow those. All the leaves of the New Testament, he says, are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. So the biblical poets give us Ecclesiastes, the prophets, they have the law and the poets, and then the prophets is the final section of the Hebrew Bible. The prophets among them is the prophet Ezekiel, the strangest of all the prophets, perhaps, which is saying a lot because the prophets are strange, good and strange. And Ezekiel is the strangest among them. He talks in very difficult, um, almost psychedelic, heavenly, symbolic imagery about the simple and devastating fact that we've been coursing over for the past months the reality of our creation, which is that God had taken his people Israel and made them his people and dwelt among them just like he took Adam and Eve and made them for himself and dwelt among them. And Israel had a temple where God dwelt and that was a symbol of the fact that Eden, God's creation, was a place where he and mankind were supposed to dwell in communion. That heart longing was never supposed to be a whole. It was supposed to be fulfilled. And Israel was another picture of that to the earth, beckoning the earth to come and be with their God. But they failed, just like Adam and Eve. They broke God's law. They rebelled against him. They went their own way. They asserted that they would be in charge, just like Adam and Eve did, just like we do. And consequently, they were thrust out of the garden east, just like Adam and Eve were. Um, They were exiled to Babylon. And Ezekiel is basically, the the first 39 chapters are that recounted. God has left his temple, and he's left his people, and he's exiled us. Ezekiel's written in exile. But that's not the end of the story. Starting in chapter 40, we get a picture of a new temple, but the temple isn't, it doesn't really make sense as a temple. Remember, the temple is a place where God and man meet, and what it really seems to be, and this is a bit controversial, but it seems to be, it's a temple ostensibly, but really, it's a new creation. There's going to come this prince. He comes in Ezekiel chapter 44, almost the end of the the book a prince who enters in through the east gate, which is the main gate of entrance. And he comes and he brings in this this new reign and this new creation. And then the text that Austin read in the second to last chapter, Ezekiel 47, talks about how, get this, in the place where God and man meet, in the epicenter is the altar. It's the place where something innocent dies and is sacrificed for the guilty so the guilty can be with God. From that place, Water, fresh water, which in the desert, which Israel is very much Canaan, Palestine, very much desert land. Now we can turn on a tap and get tap water. Then water was life, and it still is. If we didn't have water, we would, we would all die. Water, life itself, starts to come up from this place where the guilty, the innocent, dies in place of the guilty. To, to bring this new creation about, water starts to bubble up from under the altar. It flows down the southern steps, and entrance um, on the east side is mentioned. And then it goes, what, into the Kidron Valley and all around, and it just makes everything that it touches new. It gets so deep that you can't even cross it. 
and fruit, this Edenic creation begins to be remade. Fruit from trees, leaves for the healing of the nations, and everything it touches is made new. So it's this picture of this new creation that comes from the altar and goes down the southern steps. Okay, now why have I talked about all this? Because I wanted to give you a massive amount of context, and I'm not gonna spend much time, don't worry, in John 7, but for those two verses that Austin read, where Jesus, on the great day of the feast, he stands up, he stands up on probably the southern steps of the temple, and he says, he cries out in a loud voice on the greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booze, which took, took place every September, October in the fall, harvest time. And he says what Austin read. Um, let me just pause for a second before we jump, dive into that text just for a few minutes, and then I leave you with a few things until next week, Palm Sunday. I've been to Israel. My wife and I had the pleasure of going a couple years ago, and you may have been, and if you haven't, that's okay, but do know that when you go to Israel, where the Lord Jesus walked, it's a fact, atheist, believer, it's a fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a man, a stonemason, a carpenter, grew up in a certain place, uh, born in Bethlehem, grew up in uh, Nazareth near Galilee, and lived a life of about 33 years, died on a Roman cross. During his ministry of three short years or so, he... Um, he were a lot of places that we know he was. And so when you go on a tour in Israel, you'll get a lot of this. Uh, Jesus was definitely in this area. He was definitely on this Sea of Galilee, which is a lake. Um, he definitely was all, 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 he spent a lot of time in, in this part, in this northwest corner. He did miracles here, there. There's a bank where the pigs ran, ran down, things like that. So we're, you know, Here's a, a temple. This is fourth century Roman now, but on the first century down below, that black, that black stone that you can see way down there, 10 feet down, Jesus would have stepped on those stones. He taught right there. This, we think, is Peter's house. Now there's a museum over it, on and on and on and on. So you can get close. Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, the first man to walk on the moon, went to Israel after walking on the moon, went to Israel, had a guide. The guy was saying a lot of that kind of thing, which is what guides say, because it's true. And he said, he stopped the guide after a number of days and he said, look, is there any place that we know for sure Jesus walked? And he said, come with me. And he took him to the southern steps of the temple. They're still there, the original steps. Not all, of, not all the southern steps are original, but a portion of them are. Big, wide steps that lead up to this still imposing um, courtyard, tabernacle, uh, temple structure that Herod built. And he said, right here, for sure, Jesus would have walked here many, many, many times. And this is one of those times where we can be fairly certain that during this festival, he would have walked here and there's a, there's a possibility he would have been here on these southern steps during this Feast of Tabernacles. Let me give you a bit of, a, a bit of context for the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. Again, it was a seven or eight day festival, but the seventh day was the last day of activity. And it was a harvest festival. It was one of the three festivals or feasts that God said, every year I want you, my people, Israel, to celebrate and come, if you can, to Jerusalem. They lived all over Palestine, right, all over Canaan. Come to Jerusalem three times a year. This is the biggest of the feasts, of the festivals, and, uh, and just celebrate the fact that you are a people who is in this land that I've given to you, and it's harvest time. You're, you're taking from the fruit of the land. You're a blessed people, at the same time, celebrate your bounty, the fact that I'm still your God, but also look back 
to the time when I brought you through the desert. I delivered you out of Egypt through the Red Sea from the hand of Pharaoh with my plagues. You walked as on dry ground through the ocean and I kept you for 40 years in the desert. And the first generation died because of unbelief, but the second generation I kept alive and I brought you into the land. And during that time I sustained you, but you were wandering in tents. And so the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is, as well as saying thank you for the bounty now that we're reaping during this harvest time, it's a way of saying we remember when you sustained us in the desert, when you were our God who was with us, walking with us, and we were moving around in tents. And you're a God who tented with us. As Jake said last week, you tabernacled with us. You are a God who is with us, and you brought, hey, during that time, what did he do? In the desert, without water, you die. He brought water from the rock. It was spoken to, it was struck, and from the most unlikely place, a rock in the desert, water poured forth. Enough for all the cattle, sheep, camels, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. Water from the rock. So, because of that, on the seven days of the feast, a bunch of stuff would happen. But one of the significant things that would happen is the priest who took care of the temple would go down the southern steps to the Pool of Siloam, and he would get water from the Pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. And he would march it back up the steps, and there would be a trumpet, yay, victory, celebration, and a bunch of people in procession following the priest. And the priest would take the water from the Pool of Siloam back up, Um, back up the steps, up to the temple, and he would pour the water out over the altar. And so on the great day of the feast, the seventh day, and think about what else is in sevens, creation, creation itself, okay? Um, On the seventh and final day of the feast, Jesus, and it could have been the eighth, but it was probably the seventh, um, Jesus stands up and he cries out um, these words, and I'll read them again. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Y'all, there's so much here and we don't have time, but a few things. First of all, What I've been saying so far, I want to reiterate before going on. We, because of our brokenness, convince ourselves over and over and over again, even though the things that we go after don't satisfy, we continue to lie to ourselves that maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe what I grasp, what I acquire, will actually satisfy me. And what we tend to do is to try to satisfy these deep longings and yearnings that C.S. Lewis described with physical needs. And God blesses us with all sorts of physical provision. It's from him. But he knows that we have deeper needs still. And what Jesus does is he stands up and he puts his finger right on that. And he says, you are are celebrating the harvest, getting fed physically, being provided for physically. But there's a hunger and a thirst in you that transcends and goes so much deeper than any of those needs, as important as those are. And basically what he's saying here is, I'm the solution. If you come to me, if you come to me, I will slake that thirst. And more than that, if you come to me, in me, through relationship in me, I can give you something that will start inside of this dryness, this hollow space, this vacuum that's inside all of us, this voracious hole 
that just gobbles up anything that we approach, I can put something in you, this fresh water, a fountain, a spring, that will bubble up and flow into you, inside of you, and fill, it will fill you, and it will more than fill you. It will spill out over you such that people that you are around will get just splattered on with life, with life-giving water. And the thing about this, there's so many things about this, like I said, but one of the things is he stands up with all this background and says, basically, yes, I'm that rock. I'm the thing that can provide everything that you need. I'm the answer to your deepest longing. It's audacious. Nobody else talks like this. None of God's prophets talk like this. They all said, this is a word from God. Go to him. He's the answer. Jesus stands up and says, I don't just have the answer. I am the answer. All those things that you spent your life spinning your wheels trying to get a hold of that haven't satisfied you, all those lies you've been told about the fact that they can and that you've told yourself, I'm the thing that you've been looking for, even if you don't realize it. What did G.K. Chesters and I, I quote this way too much, say? He said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God, even if you don't know it. Oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine, page one, confessions. Our hearts are, he says in a Latin, our hearts are unquiet until they're quieted in you, okay? Only God, he made us for himself, this God-shaped hole that only he fills. And Jesus is saying, yes, that's me. I have a brother-in-law who's a real estate developer and they have something called a category buster. And it's a real estate phrase, apparently. And he says, a category buster is something that you, you, have, you have a part of the business figured out and this is the way people do things. And then you have a company that comes along that just busts that category wide open. And he says, Bucky's, for instance, is a category buster. Bucky's. If you've ever been in one of their restrooms, you understand what I'm talking about. I think restrooms, like, I need a good restroom for my wife on a road trip was like the reason the dude started Bucky's, apparently. And it's just gone buck wild, okay? It's gone nutty. They have fudge. They have ices. They have tires. They have things to, you know, roast large game. They have amazing restrooms. They have everything you would need or not need. Um, and they have amazing restrooms. They have, like, 55 stalls per. They're immaculate. You can eat off the floor. Um, it's a total category buster, it's a total category buster. And I just want to say, Jesus here, in line with the prophets, he's a complete and utter category buster. He stands up again and says, I'm the one that Ezekiel was pointing to. I'm the one that's going to go to the altar, the cross. I'm the innocent one that all those sacrifices in the Old Testament are pointing to, okay, that's going to lay my life down. That's why I've come. That's my mission. It's not to be a good example for you. It's to be the place where God and man meet as God and as a man, to bring God and man together, to live the life that you cannot live but need to before a holy God, and to die the death that only the guilty deserve, but I don't. So he died in our place on the cross. And Ezekiel prophesies it, and then Jesus says, that's me. There will come this prince through the eastern gate. And you know that Judah in the desert, 
Judah, the tribe of Judah, there are 12 tribes, and so three would line up per side around the tabernacle, and the tribe of Judah, which Jesus is from, always lined up on the east, okay? The prince coming through the east gate, water running down the southern steps, and he says, though that water, that sacrifice that's going to be made for the guilty to bring them back to God and to actually begin a completely new creation, whose rivers are never gonna stop making things new, and they're actually gonna come out of people that come to me. These new creations themselves who will splash out over everything they go, they encounter. They were once hollow, they were once voracious, they once pulled everything to themselves and destroyed it, and now they're outward focused, and they're, they have this generator, which John says is the Holy Spirit, that when anyone, be- he says, he doesn't say, hey Jews, come to me. Hey, men, come to me. Hey, upper class. Hey, certain race. He says what? Anyone. But you have to be thirsty. Anyone who thirsts. If you are not thirsty, and you all are, or if you don't recognize your thirst and that you are parched and what you've been trying to drink and eat has not been working, Jesus has nothing for you. But the minute that you realize you're thirsty, he says, anyone, you. Notice it's a call to anyone without distinction, but it's a particular call. He says, anyone who thirsts, come. And out of that man or woman, it's a personal call. You have to respond and say, yes, you are the God man that died, that lived in my place and died the death of the guilty in my place to bring me to you to bring me to my father who made me and whom I've been with odds, to make me a new creation that's at peace with God and out of whom will flow, instead of an emptiness, this river of life. This whole, this spirit of the living God will live inside of me and make me new and then splash out over everyone that I encounter. Um, when, when people wonder like, what is it that makes a Christian? It's this. It's Jesus himself. It's not religion. It's not a system. It's this man who says, come to me. Feed on me, drink me, be with me, believe that I am your savior and some, a new constitution is what I will give you. A new spirit will I put within you. What is a Christian? A Christian is a new creation. It's only something God can do and God beckons you, all of us. And it's not just for the person that is outside of Christ. It's for all of us. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, it's for you if you're not a Christian to come to Jesus today. If you have been believing on Jesus for 70 years or for seven years or for 17 years, it's for you too because what does Paul say? Paul the apostle who wrote half the New Testament. He says over and over again, be ye filled continually. That's the, pre- that's the, the tense of the Greek verb that isn't often translated. It's a progressive, ongoing injunction. Be ye filled, not just one time, yes to salvation, but believer, new creation, you're leaking out, you're pouring out, you need to be filled all the time with the Holy Spirit of the living God by coming to Jesus and coming again to Jesus and coming back to Jesus to feed on him. He is what our souls need. He made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Now, and I'll end with this. Jesus is that prince who comes in the gate and who brings us back into the God's presence, into the tabernacle, into the temple, and who from his sacrifice goes out a new creation and who makes us new creations, little Jesuses if I can, okay, who go out from him as 
um, as our captain and king and who are with him at all times by his spirit. But here's a question I just want to leave us with as we look toward Palm Sunday. What kind of king is this Jesus going to be? Because we're, right now, this is John 7. He's standing on the temple steps crying out. Next week is Palm Sunday. He rides in a week before he's crucified. His mission is to die in our place. He rides in on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Not as a conquering king, as the text was read by Justin at the beginning of our gathering. He will come one day to vanquish all his foes, to bring his people to himself who have looked to him by faith, and to finish evil once and for all, and to, and to spread his creation out in a consummate fashion over all things, to bring heaven down to earth for good. But meanwhile, and the first time, he didn't come in obvious power, did he? He came in weakness. He rode on a donkey. He, his power was cloaked, even as he was making audacious claims like this, I'm the source of life. Come to me and get satisfied. Stop running to other stuff. Even as he made those claims, the way that he was going to bring us to himself was by dying in our place. So he had to cloak his power. That's why he came on a donkey. So is he going to be a weak king? Is he going to be a strong king? He comes on a donkey, the foal, the foal of a colt, but it's never been ridden before. It's a baby. It's never been ridden. Have you ever ridden an unridden colt or horse or ass? No, you haven't. Maybe you have. What happened? You got bucked off. Maybe you broke it, but they buck. They buck. This thing didn't buck at all. What's the point there? And we'll get to it much more next Sunday. He comes, even in this humble fashion, he comes humbly. He comes to lay his life down, but he comes as the king of the foal. He comes as the king of the creation. He's the ultimate horse whisperer. He made that thing. <laughs> and so, he comes in cloaked power to lay his life down. We think we're crucifying an imposter. All the while, he says what? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, and he dies in our place. And then he rises three days later, and we'll get there. We'll get there on that glorious Easter morning. But this is the God that calls us to himself, this humble yet audacious man who is the water that we're thirsting for, even if we haven't known it and who, when we come to him, will give us a nuclear reactor inside of us that will just go and go as we come to him and are with him and as we are reunited with the lover of our souls. So I just wanna issue the simple call this morning, and I'll do it again in a second at table, to come to Jesus. It's the call he issues. Anyone, if you're thirsty, and if you're not thirsty, I pray that you would become thirsty and that you would realize your thirst. Anyone, come to me and I will satisfy you. Let's pray. Father, you gave us your son. As Justin said earlier, you were pleased to crush him. It wasn't sadism. You didn't enjoy it. It was love. Because you were clear in saying over and over again throughout his life, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. And you were pleased to crush him because you knew it was the only way to make us whole and to bring us whole to you. So that he who didn't deserve to be was crushed for us, for we who deserve to be so that we could come in 
sinners that we are, pronounced free, pronounced guiltless, pronounced whole, and then made whole. Holy Spirit, come bring us to Jesus. May we feed on him, may we drink him, may we believe on him and be saved and be sanctified until that final day. I beg you, Father, would you do it? In Jesus' name, amen.